Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he, God, said to him, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here at the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. This chapter, of course, has been one of the most misunderstood chapters of the Bible. And people who hate the Lord often refer to this passage that somehow God's into child sacrifice and things like that. Nothing can be farther from the truth, but as we're told, um, demented people script. Uh, twist the scripture to their own demise. And the story speaks for itself as we go through it. First of all, when we think of Abraham and Isaac, what we're going to see tonight, apart from Abraham's faith passing the test, is it's a type. It's a story. It's a beautiful story, a shadow of things to come. We've been talking about that. In the book of Colossians, we're told that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So every story, every event, every sacrifice, it points toward Christ, who is the fullness of all things, by whom and for whom are all things. And so this is a panoramic view 2,000 years before Christ came, because this is about 2,000 B.C., so, or B.C.E., as they say now, before common era, before the time that Christ came. And it's another 2,000 years from Christ that we're at right now, the church in the church age, 2,000 years. So if you think about it, the event that happens here on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Sarah, excuse me, with Abraham and Isaac, it is 2,000 years before Christ came to Calvary to die on the cross for our sins. That's a really, really long time. And we talked about this Saturday night, but God does everything in his timing. And he'll tip the cards. He'll give us prophecies to show us things before they happen so we know he's the Lord. He'll give us types of illustrations to help understand his heart and where he's going. And that's what he did here. Now, this is a type of Jesus and the Father. And yet in this type, it's still not sufficient to show how great the love is that God has for every one of us in this room and for all humanity. So in the context where we're, we need to look at Isaac for a minute, because we often think of him as being a little kid. It is highly unlikely he's a little kid, and it's much more likely that he's an adult. Now, we can't prove his age, apart from the context of the previous verse, without chapter divisions in original text, that Abraham lived in the land of the Philistines many days. And then it came to pass after these things, implying time. Also noteworthy, the two young men that he took with them, it says in verse three, he took the two young men. It means young men, generally applied to like men, 1920-ish. And then where it says, where Abraham refers to his son as the lad, it's the exact same word as young men. So the young man, 
is really a better translation than the lad because in the Hebrew, it's the exact same word. What we have here is Abraham with his young adult son and two young adult friends, the three of them going together, the four of them collectively, going to the place, Mount Moriah, where Jesus Christ will die on the cross 2,000 years later. Before the Temple Mount and Solomon's Temple, 1,200 years before that, before Jerusalem really emerges a major city in ancient history, Abraham made this three-day journey from where he was to the very place, because the pinnacle of Mount Moriah is the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, and the very pinnacle of that actually is where the Arab bus stop is, Golgotha, the place of the skull. We have every reason to believe contextually that when God called Abraham and commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac to go to Mount Moriah, that they literally went right to Golgotha, the place of the skull. To do a type, or as we in high school football, the night before a game, what they'll do is they wear shells. They call it shells, and they, they go through a walkthrough. So they practice the type of plays they're going to run in the game the next night. Of course, my boys played high school football, and so I watched these practices. So you're just kind of running through things. It's a dress rehearsal. It's like the night before a major event, like a, a Super Bowl entertainment. They'll do a dress rehearsal with whoever's doing the show for the halftime show, and they'll do it exactly like they're going to do it. It's a, it's a walkthrough, if you will. And this is a walkthrough, but not a private walkthrough, per se, although it's private in its context, but it's recorded for us in Scripture for all of us to see how God was preparing the way. There's no randomness with Christ coming. He came in the fullness of time. He came according to the Father's will, and the day he came into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt was, if you'd only known this your day, in fulfillment of the prophecy from the book of Daniel. Everything is absolute, deliberate, in order, in timing. He instituted the Lord's Supper, communion, on the night of the Passover feast, so he replaced Passover with the, the Lord's table. Everything that God does is in order. And these events are very deliberate and very much in order to show us that there's no randomness, and there's, but rather great love in the Father sending the Son to come die on the cross for us. Isaac is, some, is with his father. And we're going to see in a moment that he submits to the altar and is willing to be bound on the altar, trusting in God, trusting in his father, Abraham, and most likely the heavenly father at the same time. It's an amazing story. So these types we see, it's three days. And we know that as the New Testament interprets this story for us in Hebrews, that as Abraham went to Mount Moriah with his son, he considered him as good as dead, but that he would come back from the grave. And that's why we're told in Hebrews 11, verses 12 through 16, that when he went, so the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, and so we get that understanding by the Holy Spirit through the author of Hebrews, that when Abraham was walking that time with his son, those three days, he considered him as good as dead. Now, he knew all the promises were in his son. So whatever the father had in mind with his son, he could have never had this son. This son's the son of promise. His wife couldn't have this son. He couldn't make this son happen. He made Ishmael happen. This is all God. The promise from the very beginning is God's promise that from him would come a nation. And so for those three decades waiting for Isaac to be born, plus probably two decades while Isaac is growing up and becoming a young man, it's never been about him, Abraham, and what he could do. 
Isaac is the son of promise. And it's all about what God has done, what God had promised, what Abraham believed, what God had brought to pass. And now that faith is being tested to show us an illustration for all human history of the great love the Father has for the Son, His Son, Jesus, and all humanity. Without any precedent of a resurrection to fall on, Abraham walked for three days pondering in his mind, or as David would say in the Psalms, he would muse or consider things and even speak to himself. Abraham's thought process was, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to obey God. That's a good lesson for us. I don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to obey God. In fact, I have no precedent to understand what's going on, but I'm going to obey God because this is the next thing. We only need obedience for the next thing. We only need obedience to obey God for the next thing he's calling us to do. We don't have to understand it because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. We don't know. That's what faith is, for we walk by faith. The whole book of Acts is about adventures in faith. I don't know what's going on, but I know what I'm called to do, and God has a plan. And how many wonderful women and men have served the Lord in human history who were called to walk by faith and stay or go, or the various things, like Esther going in before the king on behalf of her people and various other stories, or Mary being a virgin saying, let it be to me as I was spoken, to have the virgin conception, How many wonderful women and men have taken those steps of faith with no precedent to see, to fall on for what God's calling them to do? And Abraham is the father of faith, so it stands to reason as he's going to Mount Moriah, the place where Christ will die on the cross 2,000 years later, he has no precedent. He can't open his Bible and say, God raises the dead, because he's living before that. Everything's a shadow of things to come. It's like people, like I've said before, with black and white TV, or wait, radio, or wait, the telegraph, or wait, not even that, the Pony Express. Like his, the revelations of God to humanity at that point, and he's the man of covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, are just limited to get out of your country, get out of your people to a place I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. That's, that's what he's got. That's what he's working on. That's what he knows. And so the three days walking with his son, Isaac, he muses within himself, Hebrews tells us, and he concludes that he doesn't understand how this is going to play out. Because when we come to what we don't know, we fall back on what we do know. So God says, offer up your son. Well, I don't understand that, but what do I know? In him, a great nation is going to come. In him, great nations are going to come. In him, kings are going to come. In him are going to be descendants more than the sands of Palestine or the stars above the Middle Eastern sky. So whatever's going to happen here, it has to be interpreted by what's already been promised there. And that's a good lesson for us. Because we come what we don't understand, we fall back on what we do. So he reasonably concludes, and this tells us a bit about logic with Abraham, that even if Isaac dies... He'll be raised up. He concluded, and maybe some of you like this, a best case scenario, a worst case scenario. Okay, worst case scenario, we lose the house, we lose everything, okay? I mean, it could be worse than that, but worst case scenario, we get overrun by the Huns or something, right? The worst case scenario can be pretty bad in the human experience. But faith triumphs over fear. So his worst case scenario, he concluded, was that his son would die, But even in then, in that case, we saw from his own mouth to the two young men, 
the boy and I, the, the lad and I, will come back. We're coming back. We're going up to, and we're coming back to. So he's speaking faith and declaring his faith even in this test. His faith never wavers in this test. And in fact, we're told from the moment God said to go, he considered Isaac as good as dead. He's dead already. And he believed that his son being dead, even as they walked there, would in fact be brought back to life. And thus, when they went down the mountain, he received his son back in a type of the resurrection. Hebrews 11 tells us that from the New Testament. See, we have, like I've been saying this, we have the restored technicolor footage of the black and white old film. It's been restored. We have the full understanding because the New Testament gives it to us. Young adult, Isaac and his dad, the two other young adult men, the whole journey, as good as dead, and Abraham's keeping these things to himself. We know Jesus went to the cross with two others by his side, right? That could be a type for sure. We know that Isaac carried the wood and the offering. Verse 6 tells us that. Of course, Jesus had his cross, and then uh, Simon came along and carried it as well. He's going to the highest pinnacle to be offered up geographically as a type of Christ. Now, what really gets our attention that makes it even better? Well, look what God said to Abraham in verse 2. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, we know that God so loved the world. He gave us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John three sixteen. The father knows a lot about having only one begotten son. And by the way, Jesus in the garden said, if there's any other way to deal with sin and restore humanity and the redemption of planet Earth, Revelation, where Jesus gets the scroll back, chapter 5, if there's any other way, let it just cut past me, but there was no other way. You realize our redemption is not possible through any human prophet, any human philosophy, any human religion. Our redemption is only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the redemption of our souls is very costly. How costly? So costly that when you picture you with your earthly son going up to a mountain or your earthly child to offer him to the Lord and how that makes you repulsed and sick in your stomach, think how it makes the father feel. For the father looked away and Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because this type is short of what Christ and the father did for us. Because in this type, the last thing we read is they went up together and they stayed together. But when Jesus went to Golgotha in the place of the cross, the father left him because the wage of sin is death. And that death is spiritual, physical, and eternal. And it's separation from God. And God the Father did one more than this type because God the Father did not go together with the Son to the cross. But he left his Son on the cross without him because his Son had experienced what we would experience under the wrath of God without the grace of God, saving us through faith in Jesus Christ. So as repulsive as the story is at first sight to the average human being, it's even more repulsive what God did for us when he gave us his son. And the son is the lamb of God slain from when? Before the foundation of the world. Before he ever made light and darkness and distinction, this entire universe, he knew this is what it would cost, his only begotten son. Wow. This is a type. And we step back, we kind of shriek back from this story. Like, 
whoa, it's often excluded from children's Bibles because it seems hard to explain. If God's a loving God, why would he call Abraham to offer up his son? But you need, we need to understand the fullness of the whole story. Not part of the story, all the story. It's the greatest love story ever. This is symbolic, WG, body of Christ, of the greatest love story ever. Because the measuring standard of love is that God so loved the world, he gave his son. By this we know love, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. So this story that in the realm of time, space, and matter seems repulsive to us in our understanding of love and the human psyche experience is actually not even strong enough to show us how great God's love is in giving us his son. For scarcely will one die for a good man or a righteous man, but Christ died for us while we were yet enemies of the Father. By this, we know love. We are loved, body of Christ, WG. And this story is the shadow, the black and white version, the radio version of that great love proven for all humanity on the cross. And God chose Abraham, the father of faith, to walk through symbolically what God the Father would do with his son. And unlike Abraham and Isaac, who got off the hook on this one, God followed through with his son on the hook, on the cross, because there was no other way. Our sin is costly, and the redemption of it is very costly. When you look at a story like this, and you realize it's a type of Christ, isn't it like an affront to think that any man or woman could be a great prophet or a great philosophy that somehow could redeem us any other way? If there was any other way we could be saved or we could save ourselves through religion or being really smart or figuring out Rubik's cubes that no one else could and that would make us saved before God, wouldn't this be so repulsive? This declares to us there is no other way. Sin is deadly business. The wrath of God is the wrath of God. And it's been revealed against all ungodly men who suppress the truth and ungodliness. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And therefore, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. And look at the testimony of faith coming from Abraham's mouth. Dad, like, Dad, where's, like, where's the offering? He says, my son... God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And didn't he? Oh, did John the Baptist, when he said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, did it click? Did he click Genesis 22? Wait a second. The greatest of all prophets, John the Baptist, right? Jesus said he's the greatest of all prophets. He said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did it click in his mind, Genesis 22? Abraham saying, The Lord will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Did it click? How about the Passover feast for 1,500 years with the Passover lamb? Was there ever a priest, a Levite, or people who loved the Lord, who in the middle of the sacrifice thought, God's going to provide his own lamb at some point? And you see, this is so important to us because in the New Testament, we are told by Peter and the Holy Spirit through Peter that we're not redeemed with gold and silver. People want to buy anything and everything with gold and silver. But you can't buy redemption of souls with gold and silver. We're bought with the blood as if a spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. When they're in Revelation and we're all there in glory, we're not singing worthy is the gold of the throne room or worthy is the silver that was used in the tabernacle or anything else. We're saying 
Worthy is the Lamb. Because we're redeemed by the Lamb. We're not even saying worthy is the King of Kings. The redeemed in Revelation, you've redeemed us from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and all peoples. Worthy is the King. Well, it does, he's the King of Kings, but worthy is the Lamb. We have to know Jesus as the Lamb of God to understand the grace of God because the Lamb of God reveals the wrath of God and the grace of God. It's not a cheap grace. The Lord will provide for himself the Lamb for burnt offering. By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For if righteousness came by the law, or us being good people, then Christ died in vain, Paul said through the Holy Spirit to the Galatians. But that Christ came is evident that none is justified by the law or their own good works. In fact, God's law tells us to shut our mouth and look to the cross. And this tells us in the prequel, it's the prequel, it's the prelude, it's the walkthrough, it's the type of what's to come. And they went together, which is the distinction between the Father and the Son, because at some point on that day of Good Friday that we celebrate, the Father did not go all the way together with the Son. And that's right there when he bore the wrath for our sins. And it's amazing grace. God is good. I feel so sorry for people who don't understand their need for forgiveness nor seek the solution for it. I'm so grateful that God worked in my life to convict me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I'm so glad he didn't let me settle in sin and have a seared conscience and be given over to my folly. And aren't you glad for the same in your life? Amen? Aren't you glad? So we read on in verse 9. Then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar, and there placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Again, while the world and the natural man cannot understand this, and devils hate this, and the devil himself hates this passage for sure, again, the New Testament gives us interpretation and revelation and additional information about what was going on in this very moment. Do you know that this verse right here is arguably the greatest act of faith in the entire human experience? Let me say that again. Let's, let's think about this for a while. This, this act, this verse, Abram, decades waiting for the promise, Sarah laughs. Abraham laughs. It defies anything of the human experience. He grows up, becomes a young man. And here they go. And he says, he's as good as dead in his, in his mind, but he knows that his son is going down the mountain with him. He has no doubt in the goodness of God, like David said a century later, taste and see that the Lord is good. And God is good. And God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. So when he comes to what he don't, doesn't understand, he falls back on what he does. Like I said earlier, and God is good. And God promised his son. And an entire nation, nations, kings are all coming from this son. So whatever's going on right here, I can trust God with it. Fully trust God with it. And he bound his son and his son submitted to it just like Jesus did. The, the, the father loves the son. And the son loves the father. In fact, Jesus prayed an entire chapter in the Gospel of John that we would understand the fellowship and the communion and the love they have for one another as God the Father and God the Son, that we could be one like they are. 
And in this visual that seems so pains us in the human experience and our standing of humanity, the altar, and he's built altars, right? Hasn't he built a bunch of altars? He's an altar builder. He's a worshiper at the altar. But this altar, he puts his son, who's everything in his world to him, on the altar. And he binds him on the altar. Think how hard that is. What has God ever called us to bind on the altar that could even compare to this? The job, the dream, the education, the relationship, the loved ones that are gone and on the altar. And he stretches out his hand with the knife. Abraham never doubted God's dominion over the natural realm as sovereign and supernatural to supersede and oversee any time. It's as if Abraham's got that knife back and he can picture Jesus walking on water. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the raising of Jairus' daughter, the widow Nain's son coming and calling him up from his coffin. He can just, it's like it's as if he can see it all. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Like we saw last week. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that knife is stretched back. And the Lord speaks. But at that very moment, you talk about a hall of fame. Oh, I saw an NBA player say today, Steph Curry's good, but we're not sure he's good enough to be in the hall of fame. We all have opinions about hall of fames for sports and this and that and everything else. Abraham is all over God's hall of fame in Hebrews 11. But this act right here, you know, when you go in the hall of fame, they show highlights, right? Like they give a speech, like the NFL, they give a speech and they, you know, whoever it might be, Kenny Stabler or whatever from the Raiders. You know, they show the highlights. It looks like old grainy film and stuff. Well, here's Abraham with the knife back. And you're saying, Joey, are you telling us that's the highlight of the greatest act of faith? Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. In James chapter 2, after we're told faith without works is dead. For as the body is dead without the spirit, so is faith without works. We are told that this act right here, the knife up and ready to go, is the working of faith in Abraham's life, the father of faith. In fact, this is the measuring rod for why he's considered the father of faith, that he did not withhold his son. And the arm is back. And James tells us, in this very act, that he believed God right to the apex of the fullest unknown. He was charging forward, nothing holding him back, in what he believed in the Lord. Nothing, you think David had faith running at Goliath? How about the knife back? And he's extended at that apex of his faith. And at this point, God says, you are my friend. And he doesn't call very many people friends in that special, intimate way. The friend of God. That's the title given to Abraham. Because of this moment, he did not hold back. And let me tell you, while it's not about application tonight, it's worth considering. He did not hold back. He was what he didn't know, fell back on what he did know, and God said, and he did not hold back. Do not hold back because you don't know. In fact, that's probably all the more reason to go. He did not hold back. This verse, stretched out hand, took the knife to slay his son, makes, this is the crown jewel apex of the father of faith for the entire Bible. That's amazing. He so believed in the goodness of God and the power of God and what he hadn't even yet experienced from God. And he was not, he didn't come this far with the son of miracle, the son of promise to pull up lame. He's charging across that finish line like there's no tomorrow. 
He's running the race with endurance. He has come this, he didn't come this far to let this get away from him. This is the crown jewel moment of the faith of Abraham, the father of faith. I have not seen or ear heard those things that God has prepared for those who love him. We want to put God in a box. We want to put God in a chalkboard equation that we can explain and understand. And so we formulate theologies, preconceived theologies, and force them on the Bible. We, we add to the Bible. We take from the Bible. We do weird things and say God made us do it. There's all these things that happen in the human experience, and yet it comes back to faith. And it comes back to the faith and the character of God, the revelation of God, the promises of God. And that's what we have here with Abraham. And how inspiring is this? Because we see as we read on from this moment, He passed the test of his faith. Not by slaying a giant, but by being willing to slay his son who wasn't his in the first place. And by the way, we're told the fruit of the womb is his reward. Our children are never ours. They're his. And the sooner you learn that, the the better you'll sleep at night too. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. And he said to him, do not lay your hand on the the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. God, of course, knows everything, so it's, it's not like he found something out at this moment. But I think Abraham found something out. We find things out sometimes how we handle the cruxables of our faith and when it's tested. We find out what we're made of. God will allow the heat to be turned up, the fire to, to come forth, and, and we'll find out what we're made of. We might say like Job to his wife, the Lord's given, the Lord's taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We've accepted blessings. Can we not accept adversity? We just don't know what the fires of the Lord will prove in our life, but it will certainly burn off the dross and the things that are contrary to the kingdom and the things of eternity. But God offered his son instead of us offering our son for ourselves. God has the offering, the acceptable offering. And he said the Lord will provide. The Lord has provided for us the salvation we need. We cannot save ourselves. Of all the provision, it's not just that Abraham's faith was awarded and proven in the testing that God provided the substitute sacrifice, which he did, of course, but even so much more than what this sacrifice was in the moment, but what it represented, that in the mount of the Lord, Calvary, Golgotha, God will provide. He'll provide salvation. And as John said and Peter said before the Sanhedrin Council, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord has provided on the mount of the Lord. There on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, we are witnesses of his resurrection and the promises and will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. And so again, pulling from this, the Holy One will not undergo decay, will not stay in the grave. Abraham took Isaac as if he was dead. This moment, he's alive and risen. And Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And there is no other way. So let intellectuals be pseudo-intellectual. Let scoffers be scoffing. But let those who hear the voice of the Lord be redeemed in the Lord and fulfill the purposes of the Lord. Because many are called and few are chosen and narrow is the gate that leads to life and broad and wide is the path that leads to destruction. 
We're not on this life and on this earth to be popular. We're on this life to be redeemed and to be fruitful for the purposes of our salvation. On the mount of the Lord will be provided. We found our salvation, all of us, at the same place, at the exact same place, at the feet of Jesus as the risen Savior, the Lord of all. We're all saved in here tonight the same way. And that yokes us with all the other believers on this planet. Wherever they are, whatever denominations and movements they're in, whatever healthy things they got, little quirky things, that they're born again, we're all saved the same way. On the mount the Lord will be provided. And his salvation has been provided from generation to generation throughout the nations. And this is who we are. We are the redeemed on the mount of the Lord. So we sing these songs with Danny or Scott on Saturday or Chris or whoever comes. We sing these songs because on the mount of the Lord, Golgotha, Jesus said, it is finished and we are saved. And we're the church, and we're redeemed, and he loves us. We're his bride, and we're going to get to that when Isaac gets a bride next week. Yeah? We're his bride, but that's for another study. So we're redeemed, and the mount of the Lord is provided. God has provided everything we need. The Philippian children, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your household can be saved. It's all right there. Lord, remember when you come to your kingdom, Today, I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. The gospel of grace, it's so glorious, it's so beautiful. How can we not joyously live it and walk in it and proclaim it with words and actions in our lives? On the mount of the Lord. I'm so glad we're not climbing a mountain to save ourselves. I'm just so glad, like, literally, like, on the mount of the Lord, I will get it done. Can you imagine if, like, God said, okay, on the mount of the Lord, get it done or else. Like, that's what world religion says and human philosophies. On the mount of the Lord, it's accomplished to be saved from the wrath and to be redeemed in the grace and to have all the promises which are yes, yes, and in him, amen. But wait, there's a little bit more. God has provided the way. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time, verse 15, out of heaven and said, by myself I've sworn. See, he's the ultimate authority. So when he swears by himself, (laughs) forget the judges at the superior court of Santa Ana. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Stay with me here. Read these. Look at these words. Verse 17. Blessing I will bless you. Multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed All nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And verse 19 is rather anticlimactic after that. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Talk about a mountain retreat with the king of kings. That last verse is like, how can you ever be the same? Sarah's like, so how'd it go? You had to be there. It was the men's retreat you had to be at. The expanding promise is right. It came all the way back to Sarah just saying, how about I just have a kid, right? And you'll have a kid. So all those expanding promises, and it came back to, you're going to have a son. Now it, the promises get expanded again, right? We're right back where God's like, hey, I'm going to expand the promise even greater. Look at the expansion. So all the stars, well, okay, so it's the blessings. I'll bless you, multiply, and I'll multiply you. So that's kind of been affirmed already. As the stars, we've heard that one before. Right after he had the knife pulled back, all those promises are reaffirmed. 
all the stars. Wait, the sands of the seashore. Now, I'm thinking that's more than the sands of Palestine. Because the sands of the seashore, two-thirds of the world is ocean, water. So the sands of the seashore, that's an upgrade on your promise. Because previously it was the sand and the soil of Palestine. Now it's the sands of all the seashore. So Hawaii, yep. Fiji, yep. Japan, yep. China, yep. Keep going anywhere you want in the world. Russia, yep. Finland, yes. England, Ireland, yes. Where all that sand. And now here comes the very pinnacle of it all. Swearing by himself, in your seed, which is one, Jesus Christ, because Galatians interprets that for us in the New Testament. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's more than you just having a son. It's more than just a nation coming from your son, or nations, and even the kings. This son, who you gave up to me by faith, in the greatest act of obedience, arguably in the entire Bible, you might find equal, but I don't think you'll find superior, because it points to Christ on the cross, and the Father and the Son's love for humanity. All nations. So all those nations in Revelation 5, praising the Lord, worthy is the Lamb, all those nations trace it right back through Isaac, the son here, who was willingly offered up on the altar. The promise got better. It expanded even more. And as we step into eternity, I'm quite certain all the promises are just going to keep expanding for us and expanding for us. It's just going to keep expanding the riches of the next dimension in our glorified bodies, in our incorruptible bodies, when we see him as he is, where there's no more tears and sorrow or suffering. So whatever the crux of challenges of testing of our faith are in this dimension, as Paul the Apostle said, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to come. All that glory all that glory, and the the ones that have sat here in this building and heard this message that are in that glory. The Dave Fritzes from the front row and the Jill Millers back there, Debbie's mom, you know, so many people have come and gone just in this building in 15 years of us being here as a church, and they're in glory, and we're going to glory. And so we serve the Lord, and we trust in the Lord. Now, there's a you know when you watch a movie and people are starting to leave and they go, wait a second, there's th- something comes up about two minutes into the credit that sets up more for the next sequel. Well, there's one more thing to look at in this text tonight. Verse 20. After all this, as if it's anticlimactic, it's really setting up the, the sequel. Now it came to pass after these things, it was told Abraham, saying, indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Camille, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jilaf, and Bethul. And Bethul begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abram's brother, his concubine, whose name was Ramua, also bore Teba, Gaham, Thahash, and Makkah. So this is a genealogy, or more like an explanation. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little, it's like a Rest area genealogy. It's important for one reason. Rebecca. Because as the promises go forward from Isaac 
He's got to have children to get all nations of the world blessed in his seed. He's the seed, but there's got to be more seed. There's got to be a nation and nations and kings. And it's got to happen. And it's going to happen through Rebecca. Which leaves us with one final thought tonight, apart from the glorious gospel of grace. God is always doing more than you ever think he's doing. Like Rebecca's not even been in the picture this whole time. Isaac's a young man submitting to his father and God of his father as a type of Christ. And he's got tragedy, tragedy around the corner and he's got the joy of a wedding day. He's got a funeral and a wedding around the corner and God's got his back for both. God's, God's preparing things for us. He's doing things for us. that are just There's things he's working on outside your sphere of orbit that can come into your orbit that are part of the grand plan that God has for you.